we'll be at today. 2 Timothy 3, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. We would love to get you one just so you can follow along with us. But 2 Timothy chapter 3, don't be shy. We'd love to get you a, a Bible in your hands. Keep that. That's our gift to you. But 2 Timothy chapter 3, um, I'll share briefly a couple quick things or thoughts. So uh, yesterday, I mentioned this, the city of Deerfield Beach contacted us and said, hey, we would love to have your church come on out and host like a booth at our Ocean Way holiday event. And it was really cool in light of us always pursuing them and emailing them and can we be a part of this? And it was nice to have them say, we'd love for you to be a part of this. So it was really fun. We had a little petting zoo and um, we had some glow sticks and like little, I don't know, trinkets just to pass out. And honestly, I I can't really tell. We probably met over a thousand people. Um, It was so neat. So thank you for serving, setting up, passing things out, just giving. Thank you for that. We can do things like that. It was really neat. We just want to be part of more city events. Um, If our city is doing something, we want to be there. Uh, They're paying the expense to get people there and we just get to show up and meet people. So that was awesome. Uh, so thank you. That was really sweet. And also we had to pass out flyers. And I want to mention this because I haven't yet. We have to pass out flyers for our Christmas Eve service. So we are having a Christmas Eve service Tuesday, December 24th here at 6 p.m. Come early. We'll have some, you know, hot chocolate and Christmassy stuff. I don't know. Uh, but come early. 530. We'll be here. But Christmas Eve service Tuesday. And um, we're just kind of looking at good news, great joy all people. That's kind of our theme for this year, and uh, I'm excited to just basically look at the gospel on Christmas Eve and celebrate the birth of God uh, on that day. Cool? Sound good? All right, sweet. Hey, 2 Timothy chapter 3. I am going to catch up to speed like I do. We are doing a series on spiritual disciplines, and this has been so refreshing for me. I hope for you as well. We're trying to get back to just those practices we've had for a couple thousand years, different disciplines and practices. And we've been calling this spiritual formation. Um, we define spiritual formation as being formed by the Spirit inwardly into the likeness of Jesus through timeless practices and disciplines. And I cannot you know, stress this enough. This is what God's doing. By his Spirit, by his word, by these disciplines, he's making us more and more like Jesus. So it's the work of the Spirit, and really it's our partnership, our work with God and the Spirit, and really carrying this out, becoming more like Christ. And so um, here's the idea for us. I think sometimes church can kind of be like a lot of theory sometimes, or sometimes a lot of it's like, let's just talk big picture. We're trying to get into the practical, nitty-gritty, how do we actually follow Jesus? What will this look like? What are some of those disciplines that will, you know, shape our life and who we are? You know, obviously our habits shape us and form us, and so we're trying to introduce new practices to that in following Jesus. So I really do hope this has been refreshing. The idea is this, that everyone is being formed into something. Every day we become more and more like Jesus or less and less like Jesus. There's no, like, neutral. So we're either unintentionally being formed or intentionally being formed. And I hope we get that. So that's why we're like, let's put these things into practice. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It's God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. God's working in you, and we're working that out. Amen? That is the idea. And we've talked about different uh, disciplines, and I hope this also is refreshing. We've called it disciplines of disengagement and disciplines of engagement. Some of you spiritually, God's like, you know what? You need a Sabbath. You need to rest. You need to enjoy some silence and solitude, maybe some sacrifice, maybe some simplicity. We've kind of talked through these different disciplines. If you see them up there, I don't know. I'm just trusting you. Uh, Then we've talked through disciplines of engagement. Maybe God's like, all right, you've rested enough. All right, it's time to kind of now be active or proactive. And there's honestly, this is a, a constant ebb and flow. It's not like one or the other. There's times where we need to go to silence and solitude and times where we got to serve and that it might be in the same day. 
Uh, and so today, or last week, let me just catch you up. We talked about the, the practice of generosity, of giving, coming off of Black Friday, that kind of a thing. Uh, now today, we're going to talk about the practice of studying Scripture, the practice of just studying the Word of God. And I've really been like looking forward to this one. Um, there's so much excitement on this topic for me. This has been a big part of God has taken his word to shape me and my family by his word and by his spirit. And so I really do want to get into this. Uh, we know that Romans 10 says faith comes by hearing and by hearing the word of God. There's something about taking in the word of God and that we grow in our faith. A guy named Eugene Peterson who wrote the Message Bible and wrote a lot of other great books. But here's what he said about this. He says, we are formed by the Holy Spirit in accordance with the text of the Holy Scripture. We're formed by the Holy Spirit just in accordance with the text of the Holy Scripture. So God's Spirit takes God's Word to produce the life of God in us. So I'm very excited about this. So let me kind of share with you what's happening today, because today's going to be a little bit different. Um, I was trying to make this one message, one sermon. You know, we're trying to do the how-to, like how to study the Bible. Um, we will probably, we will get to that next week. Next week, I think, will be super practical. We do want to talk about just good hermeneutics. We'll explain what that means. We want to talk about inductive Bible study. We want to talk about uh, something I think that is lost. Uh, that's called Lectia Divina, a way to study the scriptures, I think, in a very powerful way. And you're like, what does that mean? We'll do that next week. I cannot wait for that. I feel like in preparation and study for this, though, um, before we even talk about how to study the Bible, I think there's bigger questions that need to be asked. It's like, can we trust the Bible? What is the Bible? What is the Bible all about? What is it for? I think sometimes we might just try to get to some practical things without really understanding what is this. There's a lot of different books, a lot of different genres. How do we approach this? So today might be some big questions. It might be some information. So I would encourage you to take notes. But I hope that information leads to formation. That's the point, right? Amen? But please do, do not miss this. I think this is a lost art. I think, it's, I think that us, our generation, kind of has maybe a predisposition to kind of already be critical of the Bible. I think people are kind of... Maybe just a little bit, like, is the Bible, I mean, I've read some pretty terrible things. There's, isn't there genocide and rape and murder and incest? And is it recorded or is that approved? What does that look like? And, you know, I just think there's a lot of questions floating around the Bible. And so we want to do a good job of trying to answer some of those things. We want to try to ask some big questions and try to do our best to look at God's word to answer some of those questions. Um, I do think this is true. I've mentioned this before. Uh, the Bible in 1995, Guinness Book of World Records said that the Bible sold 5 billion copies. 5 billion copies 25 years ago. All right, so there's billions and billions and billions of Bibles out there. I'm sure it's probably doubled in the 25 years. I have no idea. But there's 5 billion Bibles sold and distributed, right? We have Bibles written in different languages, hundreds of languages. We have our Bible in English written in hundred different paraphrases or translations, whatever you want to call them. Some are both. But it is fascinating to me. This might be the most ever bought book, sold book, and probably the least read book. And this is something we have to change. It's like we, all, we have like probably two Bibles in every room in our house. And we maybe read uh, one time a week. I don't, I don't know. I just know that we can fall into this trap. You know, even though we have it, we have access to it, we might be the most biblically illiterate generation. I've made references, or maybe you've seen people make references even on TV. You have no idea. People don't pick up on some of them, or they're not aware. I just, I want to get back. I would love for our generation to be like, we're going to know God's word. God has spoken. God has written a book, and we're going to know it. We're going to love it. We're going to cherish it. We're going to seek it out. We're going to seek to live under it, submit to it, not just know it up here, but to live it out. So I would love for God to do a new work in our generation. Would you guys agree? I love in the book of Amos. I guess no one agreed, actually. Would you guys agree with that? Yeah, okay. I was like, well, that was really quiet. Uh, in the book of Amos, there's like this prophecy. God's like, there's going to be a famine in your land, but not of food. It's going to be of hearing my voice. And it's crazy because God speaks, but do we hear? God speaks. God is speaking. Are we listening? And so I do want to talk practically more, like I said, next week. on like, how do you actually approach a text? How do you study it? 
How do you internalize it? How do you apply it? But this week, we've got to look at even, can I even trust this thing? I mean, what is the Bible? What is the Bible for? And those are the questions we're going to look at. All right, so let's read. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, we're going to read Paul, who's writing to a young pastor named Timothy, who grew up in the, the Jewish faith. He knew the scriptures, became a believer in Jesus. And we're going to look at what Paul says to him. 2 Timothy chapter 3, let's look at verse 14. And this might be a passage you know well, maybe not. Um, but Paul, 2 Timothy 3 verse 14 says, Timothy, but you, you, after all these, he basically describes this evil things happening, but you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from who, or from you have learned from them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Let's pray, and we'll dive more into this passage. Father, um, we are humbled to open up this book, <laughs> to, to study it, to learn from it, to submit to it, God, my, my concern for me and my life and for our church's life is that we read it and we maybe don't apply it or carry it out or we can quote the verses, but we don't live under them. Jesus, we do want to be a doer of your word, but God, also help us with the big questions. God, those areas of doubt, those areas where we're, where we're maybe second guessing something, God, I just ask that um, you would reassure us of the things we've learned. God, I ask that in that doubt, you'd strengthen our faith that, God, you'd be so present and be here in just your wonderful name. Amen. Have you ever been to a really good food court? I know that you guys all probably have, but I love food courts. I've gone out of my way to go to a food court on, you know, lunch break. If I'm driving by, and I'm like, you know what, there's a food court there. I'll, I'll pull over. Um, but if you've ever been to a food court, maybe with your family, maybe with a group of friends, it's very, like, the, the diversity of options is very difficult. You know, where, like, no one can decide on what to get. If you've ever been with people and you finally land on an option, let's just say you're at the Boca Mall, and you're like, you know what, let's, let's go to Chick-fil-A in the mall. Let's just go to Chick-fil-A. So you're like, you finally made up your mind about what happens. As you're walking there, there's people passing out some free samples. And if you've ever been a part of that, and you're like, I'll just try a little taste, right? And it's usually some Asian buffet place. And you already can imagine it. And as you're walking there, you're like, oh, a little cup filled with chicken, like bourbon chicken, mm, or like orange chicken. And what happens is we taste it, and that MSG deliciousness goes from our tongue to our brain. And we're like, oh my gosh, I don't, and you don't remember why you're there. Like, what are we, we're here to eat this. Like something happens, but once you've tasted it, you kind of forgot even why you're there. Uh, that taste has changed your perspective. That taste has changed your direction. You're going in a whole new direction now. You're probably gonna eat now what you tasted. That happens to me all the time. I'll go there with a certain thing in mind. I taste some chicken. I'm like, I'm getting bourbon chicken. And that happens almost every time. And here's why I'm bringing this up. Um, I never, or you never, we never would have thought to go there unless you've tasted it and experienced how good it was. And I think that in life, here's the idea. Everyone's on a certain course. Everyone's on a certain direction. And we're praying that God intervenes. They get a taste of the goodness of God and that changes their direction. We're told in Psalms to taste and see that the Lord is good. That taste really does change the direction of our heart, the direction of our life. That once you get a little taste, you go, I need more of this. I hope and pray you've tasted of the goodness of God, of the grace of God. Peter writes about this. Listen to this in Second uh, Peter, or First Peter chapter 2. Peter says this, Therefore, 
laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and evil speaking as newborn babes, listen, desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Have you tasted that the Lord is gracious? He goes, lay aside, cast all these things aside, the, the deceit, the malice, the, ang- the bitterness, lay that all aside. And he goes, you need to crave desire, that word of God like a newborn babe just craves milk. You know, it's really interesting when you talk about this because I, I can't make anyone crave anything. It's hard. Like, you can talk about it, but I can't make you want to do it. You, it's hard to stir a desire within someone. Like I said, I would not have a desire for that chicken unless I tasted it, then the desire is now created. So in some ways, you want people to taste to create that desire for it and that hunger for it. And he says, listen, you need to have a craving for the word of God. So church, do we crave the word of God? He's like the same way a newborn baby craves the pure milk of the word or praise the pure, pure milk, you should crave the word in that way. I think that's fascinating. You know, it's fun. You know, uh, we had our second baby nine months ago. She's nine months old now. And, you know, there's that anticipation the last couple months. You're like, when will the baby get here? Um, I was probably more excited. No, I think my wife wanted the baby out more than I did. She's probably getting it out of me. Uh, but I was so excited to meet my baby girl, my daughter. And here's what happens. She comes out. And what does she want? She wants mom. And it's kind of this, like disappointment for her dad. You're like, oh, that's cool. You know, I've only waited nine months, but whatever. But she like wants mom, and then she wants, you know, mom, and she wants mom's milk, and you're like, all right, this is great. But here's what happens. The baby obviously craves it, and I think this is a, a really cool thing that I didn't know until we had kids, and I'm probably going to pronounce it wrong, but, you know, uh, mothers in the first few days of giving birth, they produce a certain kind of milk called colostrum. Did I say it right? Okay, I'm missing it wrong point. It's okay. But they produce like a unique type of milk for a few days. It's not really milky, but it's almost like high octane milk, right, for the baby. It's just filled with nutrients and antibiotics. Like it's just filled with really good things for the baby. It produces a lot of growth. Like the baby grows a lot in that first month. And he goes, listen, church, I want you to grow, and you're only going to grow by the milk of the word of God. I want you to crave it, desire it. You need to grow. You need a hunger for it. And so here's the thing. I'm, I'm bringing this up today because I, this is, has to be a work of God. You have to taste and see the Lord is good. You have to taste and see the Lord is gracious, as Peter says. I don't know really how to create that hunger for us. I would love for us to be hungry for the word. I'm praying that God does that as you taste and see he's good. But here's, here's what might be keeping you back from that is, but what is this book? I want to taste the pure milk of the word, but what is the Bible? It's really big. If you ever met someone and you're like, what book should I read? And you're like, uh, it's really big. Where do I start? How do I, how do I understand these different r- authors and writers and different time periods? And maybe they have a different perspective as a herdsman or as a tax collector. How am I supposed to understand this? And so it can be overwhelming. So I do want to look at three big questions today. And I would encourage you to take notes. I'd encourage you to ask questions. I'd encourage you to talk more about this at home and just like try to understand this. So here's the idea. Here's three questions we're going to look at. What is the Bible? What is the Bible for? And how can we trust the Bible? All right. What is the Bible? What is the Bible for? How can we trust the Bible? All right. So here's number one. What is the Bible? All right. At the most basic fundamental level, I'm going to start here. But we obviously believe the Bible is literally God's word. We believe it's the very word of God. Paul, we read it. I do want to read it again. 2 Timothy 3.16. What does he say? All scripture is given by inspiration of God. All right. Let's stop there. Uh, That word inspiration, I think we can kind of use in just maybe shallow ways sometimes. Like I was watching a baking show and I was inspired to bake a cake. Like, okay, that's not what he's saying here. This is not like, oh, I got really inspired by God and I just wrote what I wanted to write. No. He's literally saying, and I would write this down, Paul made up a word. I think that's so cool. Paul can do that. He made up a Greek word. He says, all scripture is, and it's one word, theonoustos. Thea, God, noustos, and it's a way of saying God's breath, God's spirit, God's lungs. It's, it's just a, it's a word, pneuma, breath, spirit. Maybe you've heard that word pneuma before in Greek. He said all of God's word 
is theonoustos. It's the very breath of God. As I speak right now, you can hear my breath leaving sometimes. The idea is like, this is the very breath of God. Where else do we see God's breath, if you remember this? There's, different, there's a different story. Remember in the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis 2, it says God breathed into man and man became a living being. You see, when God breathes into something, you better believe it's alive. God breathed into man and man became a living being. God breathes into a word, you better believe this book is alive. I love this. It's a living book. This is a powerful book. This is the very breath of God. So first and foremost, at its basic level for you and I, we're saying we have the words, the inspiration of God. A guy named N.T. Wright, who's a lot smarter than me, wrote this about the inspiration of God. He says, inspiration is a shorthand way of talking about the belief that by his spirit, God guided the very different writers and editors so that the books they produced were the books God intended his people to have. We have what God intended us to have. So I do want to talk about this. You're like, how do we know? And there's obviously a lot of questions attached to this, but we look at scripture, even Peter saying, hey, Paul's writings, I know they're difficult to understand, but it's, it's also scripture. He compares it to scriptures. Just like people try to twist the scriptures, they try to twist Paul's writings. The idea is old and new, we see that this is the very breath of God. So let's talk about this. Let's ask that question again. What is the Bible? What is the Bible? Uh, one pastor put it this way, so here's the definition I want to work with today. Uh, he said it this way. Thought is very good. He says, the Bible is a library of writings that are both divine and human, and I'll explain that, that together tell a unified story that leads its readers to Jesus. Okay, let's just look at this really quick. The Bible is a library of writings. Do we know that the, the word Bible um, is not in the Bible, obviously? Uh, the word Bible in Latin is like Biblia. It's, it's just the word book. It just means book, but that's not even true. It's not a book. It's books. Right? We know there's 66 books in here. This is a library of books. You know, if you go into a library, there's not usually one genre. That would be a really lame library. It's like it's just science fiction or cooking. I have no idea, but that'd be really lame. A library has a lot of different genres. Same too with our Bible. It's a library. I want us to get this because that means we approach a, di- a genre differently. You think about this, there's a lot of narrative. There's a lot of historical narrative. There's poetry. There's apocalyptic end times writings. There's prophetic writings. There's like census and data. There's a lot of different writing styles in the Bible. Here's why this matters. Um, I think if you don't understand there's a lot of different genres, maybe people I think in the past in church history have also approached the scriptures and they, they, here's what they say. People go, do you read the Bible literally? It's like, yes, but keep in mind, we, we read it like literally rarely. <laughs> like literature, here's the idea. We read it like in a way where whatever the literature is, if it's poetic, we're going to try to read it from that perspective. If it's history, we're going to read it from that perspective. If it's imperative and commands, some call that pro-discourse, we're going to read it as teachings and commands. We want to read it as the author intended it to be. This is so important. Because here's the idea. No one reads in Isaiah that the trees of the land will clap their hands. And I don't think anyone's ever read that. I'm like, oh my gosh, trees will grow hands and clap. Like no one does that. If you do that, we got to talk. Like, we know that's a metaphor. We know that's like, yes, when Jesus the Messiah comes and he rules and reigns, even creation itself will be, be like elated in a sense. Like, we, we take it in that way. It's like poetic. So there's hyperbole in the Bible. We might read something and go, I don't understand. This is difficult for me. And it's like, yeah, I, I know. There might be just a different writing style we have to try to understand as we approach a text. This is so important. I cannot stress this. This is a library of writings. Think of the different genres. Think about how you approach a genre. So whenever we go through a book of the Bible, you're like, Josiah, you taught differently through Mark than you did Philippians. Yeah. A letter with commandments is going to be a lot different than a a gospel narrative. So we want to teach through it the way the author intends us to teach through it and read it and understand. Does that make sense? So it will change. It will look differently. When we teach through Jonah next year, it's going to look a little different than when we teach through Hebrews. We're going to teach and approach it the way the author intends us to understand it and approach it. So we want to talk about that. So it's a library of writings. 
I love that. So, there's so many different books and styles that are both, listen, divine. Let's start with divine. That is divine. Second uh, Peter chapter 1, listen to this. Second Peter 1, Peter writes, knowing this, first of all, here's the verse, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Do we get that? So it's not like Moses one day was like, you know what, I'm sick of these people. Thou shalt not, and thou shalt, like, that was not it. He did not just kind of one day just go off. These were men who were led by the Spirit. It's not a, it, their own private interpretation, meaning they did not just want to feel like writing this one day, that God led them in this to write this. This is a divine book. We got to understand this is the very breath of God. You got to approach with that mindset. And can I also say this? It's also a human book, meaning God in his sovereignty decided to use humans. So God has used different personalities. You will see that. Paul, you'll see Paul's personality when you read his letters. You'll see Peter's personality. You'll see Luke's personality. God, it's still God's will. That's still God's, God is using that, and he designed it to be that way. But you'll still see that, and I just don't think we appreciate that always. Sometimes we try to dismiss, dismiss this side. Like, well, it wasn't written by humans. Like, it wasn't. It's the very word of God, but it was written by humans. God used them to do that. Men, as they are carried by the Holy Spirit. So it's not one of those things to be like, ashamed of. You know, it's one of those things we can actually, yo, yeah, isn't that so cool how God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick? Isn't that amazing? Right? You can take a crooked pen- pencil. It might be really crooked, but you can still draw a straight line with it. That's the idea. We, God can still draw a straight line with a, cr- a crooked pencil or stick. God has used imperfect people to write his perfect word. And that is something we'd have to just kind of just wrestle with, talk to the Lord about, try to understand. It's important as you read any book that approaches the Bible, it's the idea that this is a divine book written by man. Now, I want to clarify something. Uh, we don't believe this came to them like maybe the Quran came to Muhammad or where the tablets came to Joseph Smith, or the idea for them is like they would actually historically, from my understanding and looking at it, they would fall into some sort of epileptic seizure type of state, and kind of people go, oh my gosh, look, they're having like a, some spiritual moment between them and God, and they're downloading this information. That's not what we believe. We don't believe Peter's eyes rolling in the back of his head, he's like, blah, blah, blah. we don't believe that, okay? We got to actually acknowledge that and appreciate like, that God uses people's personality in their stage of life and what they've experienced, and God intended for that, this is not some person having this weird spiritual breakdown. They go, that's, that must be God because they freaked out. Like, no. So that's not our take on it. But listen, here's the idea. We know the Bible is a library of books, divine. It's God, but he used man to write it. And it's to lead us into the story of Jesus. And let's just talk about that. What is the Bible? What are these 66 books, 40 different, what is that? It's a way to lead us to the person of Jesus. It's the kind of like this climax of w- the world is messed up. It's screwed up. Everything's falling apart. Where's this promised one that God said will bring peace and restoration? And then comes Jesus. And we got to know that all of the Bible is really to point to Jesus. And maybe you've maybe heard this before, but I cannot stress this enough. Like when you read a book, like maybe even Habakkuk, and you're like, what the heck is that? Just look for Jesus. Look for even God's idea of sin and disorder and restoration and healing and redemption. Just look for different kind of creative designs that God places in these books that are really to create this hunger and thirst for the Messiah. This idea of where's Jesus, where's this one, this promised one? Just we got to look for that over and over again. This is the verse we use. And when I say, what is the Bible? It's so important. Uh, it's going to, it's a story leading us to Jesus. So here, here's the idea. It's Jesus speaking to really religious people who knew the Bible, who studied the Bible, they gave their lives to the Bible, and yet somehow they still missed the point. And Jesus said to them in John 5, 39, you search the scriptures, you read the scriptures, and in them you think you have eternal life, but these are they which testify of me. So Jesus said, you read the Bible over and over again, and you're trying to figure out, okay, does the law say this? Can I do this? And he goes, and you're missing the point of this. It's pointing to me, it's speaking of me, and you miss it. And here's what we learn, church, and please hear this. You can grow up in church your whole life, be around spiritual things and people your whole life, and still miss the point. We have to know that. 
This is a concern for me, where I go, God, help me not to know your word, but not know you, the author of the word. I think a lot of people want to know the Bible, and they don't want to know the author. Don't forget that this is God's way to reveal himself to us. Guys, we cannot fall into this trap. I would, I would love for us to acknowledge this, this fact, that the Pharisees, the religious rulers of their day, they still miss the point, and they study this nonstop. You could study this book day in, day out, and still miss the point, and you still miss Jesus. Jesus like, you've missed it. You've missed that the whole law is to show you can never keep the law, and it's pointed to someone greater who could, could keep the law for you on your behalf, and that is Jesus. And that, that is our thing. We want to look at Jesus. We want to see. I love what Jesus said. Jesus was so offensive in his words. We got to understand that. When Jesus says this, they're going, this is why they wanted to crucify him. He goes, wait, wait, you're saying this whole book's about you? How narcissistic does that sound to them? Jesus would say a few verses later in John 5, 46, he said it this way. He goes, if you believe Moses, because they boasted in Moses, if you believe Moses, he says, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. Oh, them is fighting words, right? He's like, what? Moses? Like our guy? Like, yeah, if you believed him, you don't really believe Moses. He's saying you don't believe him because if, if you really did believe him, he, he, he would understand he's writing about me. That Jesus is basically saying the whole law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all of it speaks of me. This is, this is something that it's rallying them up. He goes, it's all about me. One of my favorite stories, and I know you know, it's in Luke 24, but in Luke 24, let me just tell you the story. Jesus died, he rose again. Uh, people at that time, it says Jesus, can, like, he kind of hid himself from revealing who he was at that moment. There's two disciples who are leaving Jerusalem, sad, discouraged, Jesus died. Where is he? You know, he's dead. He's not, they don't think he's come back to life. Jesus is walking with them in Luke 24, and he's like, why are you guys sad? And they say, you must not be from around here, right? Like, who are you? You don't know what's going on. You don't know what happened. And in Luke 24, here's what happened. I want to read the verses to you. Luke 24, verse 25. It says this, Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And listen, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Wow. I really would like, I don't want to say kill, but I might, I would kill to get this tape. Like, could you imagine having this podcast? Could you imagine listening to Jesus open up the Bible speaking of Jesus? Jesus, from the law, from Genesis, all the way through the prophets, is saying, let me show you about every passage that speaks of me. I don't know if it's every passage, but all the things concerning himself. That is mind-blowing. I wonder if he started in Genesis 3, and he talked about, you know, the seed of the woman that crushed the serpent's head. And he's like, hey, how does a woman have a seed? Does that make sense? I just, like, wonder what Jesus did if he talked about Psalm 22 and the, the idea of death by crucifixion. I wonder if he talked about the Messiah coming on a donkey. I, w- I just wonder what did he use to point to say, don't you see how it's speaking of this Messiah? That, that three days later he would rise again. We see that in the story of Jonah. We see that in Psalm 16. Like, don't you see the resurrection? I wonder what Jesus used. It would have been so great to have that teaching. Now, I would play that teaching every weekend if we had that unrecorded. That would be phenomenal. He's like, it's all about me. And listen to this. It's in Luke 24 again. It says, all things, listen, all things must be fulfilled which are written in the law of the prophets and the, and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. So the law, the prophets, the Psalms. That's the whole Testament. That's how they break up. Maybe you've heard of the Tanakh before. It's the law, it's the prophets of the other writings, the other scriptures, the Psalms and various writings. He goes, all of it speaks of me. So listen, guys, when you read the Old Testament, I know it might be like, oh my gosh, here we go, Leviticus again. <laughs> what the heck is Obadiah? Like, I get it. I get it. It's difficult. But if you can be present and say, God, I want to see Jesus in this. I really do believe you'll see Jesus in it. All of it. You're like, no way. Yes, all of it speaks of Jesus. Do we get that? I remember reading through Leviticus and Exodus when I was reading through Hebrews. And it was almost like, oh my gosh, I get it. I get why God was so meticulous in the details of the, whether the altar or the, the veil in the temple. Like, I get it. It all speaks of Jesus in a very beautiful, significant way. We got to see it in this way. Uh, what is the Bible? The Bible is a library of writings that is divine, written by man, 
really to lead us to the story and the person of Jesus. See, we got to see that. And there is this beautiful, the Bible, it's crazy how much story, I think 44% of the Bible is narrative, it's story. God loves to speak to us through, through story. Put us in the story, we'll talk more about that. So that's what the Bible is, but okay, number two, listen. What is the Bible for? All right, what is the Bible for? Can we read again verse 15? 2 Timothy 3.15, look down. What is the Bible for? What does he say? He says, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. All right, here's the idea. He goes, Timothy, since you're a young guy, you've been given the scriptures, and they're here to make you wise for salvation. Understand this. God's not trying to confuse us. God's not trying to make the Bible difficult to understand. He's actually trying to make it really, there's something that, and I don't want to overwhelm you. There's a beautiful doctrine that has a really big, heady name, but it's a really easy meaning. I don't know why they do that. It's called the doctrine of perspicuity, right? The doctrine of perspicuity. Say that word perspicuity. Why not? Let's learn it. Perspicuity. Here's the idea. Um, the Bible, God never wrote the Bible intended to trick us. God was not trying to make it difficult for someone to understand the Bible. I get that we do need to know authors and time periods and context and genre, absolutely, but God's not trying to trick people on how to get saved. In 2 Corinthians 11.3, it says, do not be deceived by the simplicity that is in Christ Jesus. In the garden, God said, don't eat. Everything else is yours. It was so simple. Satan goes, did God really say, how do you complicate that? He complicated it somehow, right? My point is with salvation, it's I really believe God's like, I want to make it so simple a child can hear and believe. I want to make it so simple. Someone who's just brilliant in whatever study, whatever PhD they have, they have to humble themselves into the humility of how simple and amazing the gospel is. And there's something about the scripture saying, I, God's like, I just want you to be saved. Do we get this? Do we get that God's heart is for people to be saved? That God is willing that none should perish, but all should come to repentance. That as Ezekiel wrote, or that God said in Ezekiel, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, therefore repent and turn and live. Like, do we see that God's heart is so clear? He's like, I take no pleasure in people falling away from me for all of eternity. Repent, believe in me. He's like, the scriptures are there to make you wise for salvation. They're to make you wise for salvation. And then he goes on and says, all of God's word, all of the scripture, all of God, it's for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, so that you may be thoroughly equipped. You might be ready for any moment, any circumstance, that God has just equipped you for life. So there's a lot of fours there, um, and you can read that again. But here's what I want to point out really quick. What is the Bible for? Here's some three big thoughts, honestly. What is the Bible for? Or what is the Bible about or for? Here's the idea. Um, It is about who God is, first and foremost, who we are, and then a longer sentence, to shape us into the image of Jesus so that we can participate in the ongoing story of healing and renewal. <gasps> Isn't that great? Listen, okay, let's just break this down. What is the Bible for? It's to reveal who God is. Can we just start, can we just start there? Genesis 1, in the beginning, God. Know this, the Bible is not about us. The Bible's about God, and it's about him revealing himself to us, yes, but it's about God. It's not about you. It's not about your best life now. It's not about any of those things. Those, you know, you might learn, you might grow in in life. That's great. But the Bible is about God. God's like, I want you to know who I am. You know, there's too many like conversations about what God's like or what she's like. There's all these things that are thrown out today. God tells us what he's like. I'm not saying she, I'm saying that's what people say. I'm saying that, that people throw that out there all the time. You might go in the street corner and they'll just throw out different terminology about who God is. But here's the thing. We can know who God is because God revealed himself to us. God is like, let me reveal myself to you. You don't, have to, you don't have to question everything. You don't have to second, let me, let me, let me show you who I am. You know, there's a guy named A.W. Tozer who was kind of like a prophet to America in like the mid-19th century. And here's what he says. It was so good. Listen, he says, we tend by a secret law of the soul 
to move toward our mental image of God. This is true, not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church always. The most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. Here's the idea. He goes, what you think about God just kind of shapes and changes who you are. So the Westboro Baptist people, if you've heard of them, their view of God is a very angry, bitter. He hates certain people groups. He hates certain sexuality types. And so because of their belief, they'll go stand in corners or they'll go to funerals and they'll hold up signs and say, God hates homosexuals. God hates fill in the blank. And they'll actually protest. I've had pastor friends who've been po- protested by Westboro Baptist Church, which I find fascinating. And they put their name, they blow up. And then it's just crazy. It's crazy. But this is their view of God. It's evil. It's sick. It's wrong. We condemn it. We'd never call, I would never call it the church. You know, that's the name. And they're, like, they're not the true church. They're misrepresenting God completely. It's Muslims and their view of God who believe that because if they want to be right with their God, they have to declare, you know, holy jihad. And, you know, if anyone who does not believe is considered the infidel, will take off their head. Like, my point is, different groups of people, their view of God changes and shapes who they are. So, for us as a church, how do we view God? You better believe that's going to shape how we interact with each other. Is God all-powerful? Do we believe that? Do you believe that God is gracious and merciful and compassionate and long-suffering and just and holy and righteous? And you're trying to understand the grace and mercy of God with the justice and holiness of God. And you have that tension of God, you're gracious and merciful, but you're also just and holy. And I want to live and walk in that, not condemn one or the other, or elevate one above the other, but walk in both because that's a beautiful thing that on the cross, God was completely just and merciful. How do you be just and merciful at the same time? The only answer I know is the cross. God paid for the punishment and the sins of the world, but also was crazy merciful at that same moment. My point is, you're in, I, our view of God will shape how we live, how we interact, how you treat other people, how you speak of poorly of other people or well of other people, how you and I view God as everything. So here's the idea. God's like, I want to reveal myself to you. Why? Because that is the most important thing about us. Because why? number two is this. It reveals who we are. God goes, here's who I am, and guess what? You're made in my image. Now, Sin has broken that and marred that. And we're image bearers of God. We're not God, but we're made in the image of God. But in being made in the image of God, sin has come in and crept in and just broken things and has kind of deteriorated things. And so first and foremost, when I say number two, who we are, we do need to know this. We are sinful, broken people in need of restoration and healing. God is trying to get us back to the garden. If you've ever read the Bible as a whole, I love it. It starts in a garden and ends in a garden. It's this idea of there's a garden in the beginning, we lost the garden, Jesus is in the garden praying, and we end up in a garden, in this garden city. The way the Bible describes it, it's a beautiful thing. We're trying to get back to that garden idea, that garden image, and here's why I'm saying this. Things have been broken, messed up, but we cannot forget that we're image bearers of God. My point is this, um, who we are, people try to put kind of like an identity stamp on you. Oh, you are homosexual, you are heterosexual. You are a Republican. You are a Democrat. You are cool. You are not cool. Everyone loves to throw identities on people, and here's what God says. You're made in my image. So right away, guess what? We have great value and worth and meaning, and we, we're not going to elevate or diminish one group of people because everyone's an image bearer of God, and I love that about the church. I love about what God says about us. Church, this changes how we interact with each other. There's not one ethnic group or social group better or worse than the other because we're all image bearers of God. That is an absolutely beautiful thing. I mean, the very idea that we have meaning is a God theology-based thing. There is no God. There is no meaning. Make up your own meaning. I mean, the very fact we have value to me is an existence or proof for God's existence. Why do we care about value? Why do we care about meaning? Because we're made in God's image. And so we're trying to get, there's this idea of this is who we are and sin has broken that. So here's what I love. What is the Bible for? Can I tell you this? Um, The Bible is here to tell us an alternative story of life. Seriously, listen, this is so important. All of us are throwing out different stories of life. We find meaning 
in relationships and people? Why are we here? Why do we exist? Um, what is your purpose in life? All of us are f- like thrown out different stories. Hey, the, the point of life, the story of life is just to be happy. The story of life is just to find the one you love, live happy, live We're all thrown different stories of life. The Bible says, can I offer you another alternative story, a better story? A story that says, guess what? God loves us and made us and designed us and he, he wants deep relationship with us, but sin has broken that. And ever since then, God is trying to show profit and person after person, restore that broken relationship. That ultimate climax is in the person of Jesus. That Jesus is the one our hearts have always longed for. That we are made by him and for him. And there's a story of now of redemption that God has redeemed us, but he's still redeeming us. And he will redeem us one day, ultimately. And we're part of this story now with God. There's an alternative, better story than the stories you and I are fed every day. Amen? Would you agree? There's a better story. There is a better story that we have. Everyone lives by certain narratives of life. Nobody cares about me, no one loves me, no one values me. Everyone tells themselves different stories. And God's like, let me tell you the story of life. Let me tell you the true story about who you are and how I made you. Guys, why do we say preach the gospel to yourself? It's a better story. It's a better story that meets those longings in your heart. Where we think, I'm not satisfied in this moment. I'm not satisfied in this relationship. I'm not satisfied in my work. And God's like, you can have all, you can be content in all things because of what I've done. And I, I just think like, time and time again, the Bible's trying to redeem these different stories and lies we tell ourselves. Let's get back to this true good story, who we are. Amen. Do we agree with that? And not only that, but listen, that leads us to the third thing. Who, that's who we are, but who's God trying to make us into? Listen, to shape us into the image of Jesus so that we can participate in the ongoing story of healing and renewal. So now God's like, this is my story. We're going to get back to this idea of the garden city, the, the man walking and talking with God in the garden. That's the end of Revelation. And God invites us into the story and says, invite others into the story. Help bring healing and renewal in the land that I restored all things, but I also will restore all things, and we get to be a part of that work with him. That is a beautiful thing. A, a pastor named Mike Erie, who's from Orange County, uh, where I, we grew up, uh, he said this. I thought it was so good. He says, the Bible reveals the world as it really is. It is not primarily a theological textbook, a body of laws and regulations, or a collection of nice moral stories. It is a story that presents a different way of seeing the world and our lives in it. It's just presenting to us a different way. A guy, uh, an author, a pastor named Joel Green said this, and I just want you to hear this. He says, we don't read the Bible simply for information, but also formation. We read so the scriptures will shape us to be more and more like Christ. Spiritual formation is not measured by how much we know about the Bible or how often we read the Bible, but by the way we follow Jesus. This is the bottom line. We can be familiar with much of the Bible and still not love or follow Jesus. Wow. This is way too true. If you ever met someone who's like, I love Jesus, I'm like, but you hate everyone. Like, what is that? And you see, they see kind of within Christianity these little pockets where it's like, but you're so judgmental, you're so critical. You say you love Jesus, but Jesus said you'll be known, you'll be marked by your love for one another. And like, where is, we're trying to say, let's get back. Let's not know the Bible, let's live under the Bible. Let's submit to the, the teachings and the way of Jesus. That is the hope. If we come here week after week just to grow in information, we've missed the point. The whole idea of why we get information, it is for the point of formation, he's saying. So you form us more and more into the likeness of Jesus. Let us be formed by the word. Let us be doers of the word, not hearers only. Do we agree? We agree. Well, we do. That's a different story. We'll see Monday, right? That's the idea. We won't really know. It's like you're hearing it. Let's live it out. Let's walk it out now. So we're to join God in the story of redeeming and healing all things. So what is the Bible? It's that library of books written by God, and he used man in the process to do that, really to lead us to the story of Jesus. What is it for? It's to reveal who God is, who we are, and who he wants us to be in Christ. But let's look at the last thing. Can we really trust the Bible? Or really, number three, how, how, how can we trust the Bible? Like, I get it. This is a very good question. How do we know that what we have today is what they had back then? 
How, how can we really trust the authors and the intent and the motives behind that? Guys, this is not, um, this is not a one, like, let me give you five minutes, come and do that. that that's, this will not be sufficient, let me just say that. Uh, there's a book I read called Why Believe the Bible by John MacArthur. I would highly recommend that. If you're just curious, like, why should I believe the Bible? There's just a little book I think that can help you along the way. Let me give you a few thoughts from that book and, and really just a few thoughts in general. Um, why can we believe the Bible? Number one, it's wonderful unity. I mean, really think about the Bible. Maybe you've, I know you've heard this idea, but the Bible is 66 different books written by 40 authors over about a span of 1,500 years in three different languages on three different continents by people of all sorts of backgrounds. Like I said, shepherds, tax collectors, kings, priests, prophets, written by all type doctors, written by all type of men. And, it, and yet, and yet, there's one unified story of this person that we've been longing for, the, the awaited one, the coming one, the Messiah, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and that is Jesus. And every story, you'll see this idea of like error and redemption and sin and redemption. And it's not just many little stories. It's really pointing to one big story that God's just trying to show from beginning to end. Man, apart from me, is broken and lost and sinful. But with me, you have me. You're with me of everything. You have life eternally. And you have it found in the person of Jesus. And there's this one beautiful story. And yet a span of, 66 books, 40 authors, 1,500. It's unbelievable. When you read the Bible and see that, when you see what Jesus said in John, when it starts to come off the pages to you, and you go, oh my gosh, do people know this story? Do they see how it speaks of Jesus? And you start to feel that, and like, yeah, people have. I'm sorry you haven't heard that yet. But it's beautiful. It's beautiful when you discover that for yourself. And I would say, yes, look at the Bible. It's wonderful unity. That people say, oh, it's filled with contradictions. And I'm like, what do you mean? And they, they, don't, they, they never know how to like, follow up with that. It's filled with contradictions. I'm like, can I have one, please? Yeah. And, like, there's nothing, and, like, and not that there's not, not that there's not difficult things to understand, but I'd say, is that a contradiction or is that tension? Is that tension that's a good tension? We're saved by grace through faith. And then James is like, you're saved by works. Are they contradicting? No, actually, when you study it as a whole, you go, oh, that's beautiful tension. And so my point is, like, there's a wonderful unity to the Bible. Number two is this, um, and this is a, a really, I think, powerful one. If you, we could spend more time on it, but Jesus trusted it. Jesus trusted it. It's amazing how much Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy, the Psalms, Jonah, Jesus refers to the book of Jonah as a true story event that happened. There's some amazing parts where Jesus, Jesus is in the, the wilderness with Satan, and he's quoting scripture to combat temptation. And he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This is what Jesus' source of strength was. This is his food, in a sense, he lived off of for that 40 days of fasting was the word of God. That Satan picked up on it and goes, let me quote to you Psalm 91. And Jesus, well, let me quote to you Deuteronomy. Like, I love this, what's happening there. And it's not, is Psalm 91 wrong? Nobody used it out of context in the inappropriate way at the inappropriate time. My, I just, there's something where Jesus submits to scripture and that says a lot. There's something that Jesus quotes scripture and so what is he doing? He's affirming the book, he's affirming the author, he's affirming what was said and written. Do we get that? You're like, well, should I trust Jesus? Well, we'll talk about the resurrection and all that later. But there's, there, I just love that Jesus affirms it. We'll move on, number three. Obviously, and this is, I know you know this, but it's fulfilled prophecy. In Why Believe the Bible by John Mark Arthur, he gives four specific, I think it's about four, specific examples of here's a prophecy in detail, here's when it was written, how it was written, and here's when it was fulfilled. And you can read about some beautiful things in there. Um, I'm not going to get into that. I just want to point this out. We've all heard this. We've all heard this like before where Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies. Yeah. I'm a, if, we have the ver if we have it, um, you can see there's 365 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled himself. Can we put that up? There we go. All right. Um, if you want to take a note or write that down <laughs> or take a picture, I do love this. There's, when we say this all the time, like Jesus fulfilled over, it's like, no, it is true. I mean, read it, search it. And you see when it was written by Isaiah and people go, no, Isaiah couldn't have been written then because this is way too accurate. It's like, yeah, I know. Daniel 9, Daniel, just some amazing prophecies. And I'm, again, it would take hours to go into, but I'd say, please read, please explore. 
we invite you into that. And we invite into the question. We invite you into challenging it. We invite you into saying, I don't know if I, that's great. We all trust a certain narrative of life. We all trust certain historians. Why not look at a book that's lasted a long time? Number four is this. Uh, that's the point. It's longevity. Guys, think about this. Think about how, what the Bible survived. Think about Diocletian who tore it apart and a Roman emperor who said, we're going to just vanish the Bible from our kingdom. Think about the underground church and how it just thrived. Think about the different crusades, the, the, some of the Muslim crusades that went around burning Christian libraries so we would not have any manuscripts. Think about how God just kept this around. Think about how people have been burned at the fire, burned at the stake. People have been pierced to death, crucified for why? For preaching this book, carrying this book, loving this book. Think about how it's still today, this persecution exists. But think about how it just lasts. And, and again, it's the best, number one, I, I love that, but I kind of don't like that. It is the number one selling book. I don't like it because we just don't read it. But it's awesome to know that it's still just thriving in that way. Different people have tried to say this book won't be around and, and my generation will be gone and it's still here. The longevity of the Bible is absolutely amazing. We were, I was got to go to Israel, as I mentioned, a few weeks ago. We went to the Qumran Caves where a little shepherd boy in the 40s uh, was finding, looking for a sheep and he threw a rock in a cave and he broke this car, this clay vessel, and he goes inside and climbs inside, and he finds what we call now the Dead Sea Scrolls. I mean, he found just hundreds of manuscripts that are 2,000 years old that you can see this, and it's, it's fascinating because what they had then is what we have today. I mean, it's not even 99.8% similar. It's 100% similar. It's fascinating. I mean, you can go around and see the Dead Sea Scrolls. They usually tour them in different areas or parts. I mean, what we have today, the longevity of it is what they had. There's so many things, there's thoughts attached to this, but I love, I love the fact that we still have a book that people have hated and out outlawed and killed people over for owning and it's still around and still thriving. And lastly is this, um, it's transforming power. Can we trust the Bible? I would just say look at, look at people who all the story after story after story after story they go, and I know this is subjective and I'm not, I'm not against subjective arguments. Sometimes you have to use subjective arguments and say look, up, look how profound this is. This slave trader, this murderer, this rapist, this guy that had his life thrown away, somehow God totally redeemed him or her, brought them a new family, new life, new values that you see them thriving, you see the fruit of their lifestyle. There was an evil, disgusting, gnarly person, and now they're this beautiful person who brings life and restoration on earth. More hospitals, more orphanages have been made by Christians in the fall of Jesus. Then really, it's funny, you can go to any country and there's still that mindset of Christians just love to plant hospitals and churches and they add value to community and life. And there's just something where I go, I don't, the transforming power of the Bible is, is a very good argument, I think, for can we trust this book? I'd say read it. Someone's like, I don't know if I read Romans. Just re give time for it. I've read the Bible before. Read it and contemplate. Read it and slow down. Read it and say, if this is real, God, I, if there is a God and you're real, then reveal that. Re just read it. Oh, read it. So here's our practice and discipline for the week or month, church. All right. We're going to end with this. Read the Bible. <laughs> All right. So um, I want to encourage you guys by the end of this month to simply do this, uh, just to read one book of the Bible. I would, I'm going to recommend Colossians to you guys. That's just a recommendation. But before the new year, before December 31st, don't wait. Like, in the new year, I'll read the Bible. Don't do that. Don't fall into that trap. It just won't happen. Um, like, start now. Pick a book of the Bible and say, I'm going to read through this. Maybe reread it a few times. We're going to talk about how to read the Bible next week, which I'd highly recommend. You do not miss that uh, because there is, there's sometimes we need to read large portions and large chunks and get the big, sometimes we need small portions and small chunks. But I'm just going to encourage you right now for this week, as we enter into next week, just start reading. Read one book. Um, it's funny, today in 2019, almost 2020, if someone reads like the length of an Instagram post, like, wow, you read the whole post? Like, yeah, like I'm a reader. Like today, for some reason, like that is a big deal. I don't know why, like our, just our, the bar has been so lowered. Um, I would love for us to raise the bar again and say, we can read again. We can start, God has given us a book that people died to get this book into our hands and like maybe we can appreciate it just a little bit.
I would say, let, let's, just, let's just try to start there with picking one book and reading all the way through, not getting distracted, not getting sidetracked. I'm going to pick this book. I'm going to read it. Look for Jesus in it. We'll talk about how to read it next week, and you're like, oh, I wish I knew that, but we'll talk about how next week. I'll give a couple different ways you can do that. I think there are different ways to read the Bible, uh, but I want to just start there with reading it. I think you can't go wrong with just reading it. <laughs> just start reading it. Can we pray and can we worship the God of this book, the author of this book, the one who says, I gave you this book to reveal who I am, that you don't just grow in information, but you grow in the knowledge and grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we're going to pray, and we're going to just go, hey, author of this book, meet us. Speak to us. We want to know you. We're going to end with some worship. We're going to close out with a couple of quick thoughts. So let's just pray right now. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your son, Jesus, who is the word incarnate who is the word made flesh dwelling among us, who is God's final revelation to man. That you spoke at various times and in various ways through prophets of old, but in these last days you've spoken to us through your son, Jesus. Thank you. God, we just ask that we would not know the word, but know you, the author of the word. That your word would lead us to you. That God is, just like we read a love letter, we don't Love the love letter, we love the person who wrote it. So we love you. We love the love letter, but we love you, the one who wrote it. And we just ask that you would be here, that you would move, that God, um, our heart and attention would be on you in every way, Jesus. In your wonderful name, amen. Let's just stand and uh, enjoy our Lord.